the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, this is Global Denmark. Just off Interstate 80, about halfway between Des Moines and Omaha, lies the little hamlet of Elkhorn, Iowa, home to the Museum of Danish America. In this episode, we talk with Tova Brandt, who is director of the museum, about why the world needs a Museum of Danish America at all, why Elkhorn, of all places, became known as Denmark on the Prairie, and why, in the world, Badistapulsa and Apelskiva, a.k.a. Danish pork sausage with pancake balls, are the absolute go-to treat when visiting this little Danish settlement in the heart of the American Midwest. Almost 40 years ago, um, a group of Danish-American um, scholars, uh, college professors, um, leaders within the community were looking around and seeing that a lot of other ethnic groups and immigrant groups in the United States had started and organized their own museum to collect their history, preserve their history, and share that history. And the Danish-Americans looked around and said, well, we need one too. So um, in 1983, um, this museum was formally incorporated to be the National Museum to preserve and share the story of Danish immigration to America, the experiences of Danish Americans, and the kind of uh, cultural influences in both directions um, between Denmark and the United States. Now, the museum is located in Elkhorn, Iowa which is uh, known to many Danes because of the Brothers Price who were there and did a TV program a few years ago. But why is the museum itself located in Elkhorn? What is it about Elkhorn that seems to be the magnet for all things Danish in the United States? Well, because historically Elkhorn was a magnet for many Danes coming to the United States. Not all Danes, not a vast number, but um, but Elkhorn was one of the communities that had, in the second half of the 19th century, a, a critical mass of Danish immigrants. And once that critical mass is established, it becomes a, you know, a magnet for other Danish immigrants, maybe not to settle forever, but when you can go and know that there are people who speak your language, who share your background, you can find work um, and and maybe acculturate to America, then move on to, you know, to find your own homestead or your own business or move on to an urban area. Um, Elkhorn was that kind of community for you know the late 19th and early 20th century Danish immigrants. It wasn't the only one, but it was known as one of those places that Danish immigrants could come and kind of get their feet on the ground. There were a lot of institutions that actually helped that. Um, Elkhorn was the site of the first Danish-style folk school in the United States. And that, too, became an attractive um, thing for for young adults, you know, fresh from Denmark to, you know, further their studies, um, learn English in a more formal uh, institution like that, um, and and continue that kind of folk school experience um, in the off-season uh, when um, the, the uh, 
The young men would generally come to classes in the winter when there wasn't farm work or carpentry work available, and the young women would often attend classes in the summertime. I um, did a little bit of research about where people with Danish ancestry live today. Uh, the largest concentration actually live in Utah. That's right. <laughs> That's Why right. is that? That is because the first wave of Danish immigration to the United States was Mormon converts. Um, just after Denmark um, uh, uh, set up its new constitution in 1848, one of those constitutional freedoms that was new to the country was freedom of religion. And that happened to coincide just at the time when the brand new Church of Latter-day Saints in the United States was really to start starting their international mission work and, and reaching out to communities all around the world. The Book of Mormon was translated into Danish very early on and introduced to Danes in Denmark. Many people converted to the Mormon church and then joined the Mormon migration westward across North America. So now it's it's many generations removed, and there are still a lot of um, Hansons and Petersons and Rasmussens in Utah, um, and a lot of people who still kind of connect with a, a Danish ancestry, um, but their their families over generations have have remained, you know, very integrated with the the communities uh, centered around the Mormon Church in that in that region of the country. Now it seems to me that Danes um, don't have the same kind of relationship with the old country as, for example, the Irish in America. Why is that? Um, you, some people have that kind of a relationship with Denmark, um, uh, and and you do see that um, in the in the smaller towns that have that 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 Danish history. Um, you can walk through through Elkhorn today and talk to people who will say, "Yes, I'm a Dane." You know, were you born there? No. Like, have you visited there? No. <laughs> but I'm a Dane. <laughs> it's like, well, that's actually a shorthand for Danish American, of course. Um, and in the the sense of um, visceral um, Danish heritage um, is not as is not as strong among a lot of Danish Americans as, as maybe some other um, immigrant groups to America would experience. And so um, there, is, there is often a sense of individual family nostalgia um, and kind of a, a deep interest in the particular island that your grandparents were from and, and wanting to see that. And so we certainly see those patterns of, of wanting to have that connection to what is, what is largely a, a kind of a, a 19th century agricultural Denmark. I mentioned earlier the, um, the Brothers Price TV program, and uh, it's, it's, Widely loved in in Denmark, <laughs> and it's I think um, something that a lot of Danes, when they see it, and they see the people of Elkhorn, um, they say to themselves, "Well, that's not the Denmark I know. <laughs> that really is a, a Denmark, a nostalgic Denmark that doesn't exist today, or maybe I don't know if it ever even really did exist." But um, but but in any case, they seem to think that it's kind of far removed from what Denmark is today. Do you experience that with the Danes that visit the museum? 
We do. Um, we do. And, and we see it especially um, with the Danish interns who come and spend a few months with us at the museum. Um, and, and I encourage them to put on their anthropologist hats. You know, and that, you know, part of the reality of the story of immigration, especially to to this part of the Midwest and, and to lots of parts of the United States, is that immigrants arrive with the culture they carry. And when it's transplanted to a new place, it it basically becomes fossilized. <laughs> and so, you know, removed from the home country, which is going to naturally continue to progress and evolve and have different influences and change in different ways. When you take a, a community, a, a family who leaves in, say, 1890 and comes to a rural setting in, in the American Midwest, they're going to maintain the traditions and culture that they know. And there are going to be absolutely no outside influences to change that. It's not going to continue to evolve in the same way that culture back home in Denmark is going to. You know, it might be influenced by American culture. And, and I think the classic example is Abelskiver and Medistapulsa. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which most, you know, which most Danes who come to Elkhorn are horrified <laughs> that this is a very common kind of traditional food served in Elkhorn. Of course, in Denmark, you would never serve Edelskiver and Medistapulsa on the same plate, let alone at the same meal. Like, no, no, no. But this is now a Danish-American tradition. Those Danish immigrants brought their Abelskiver pans and they continued to make Abelskiver. Um, but the ingredients for Abelskiver are really close to pancakes, American pancakes, which is a breakfast food. Similarly, Medistapulsa, well, it's basically sausage. Well, pancakes and sausage is a breakfast menu in the United States. So the Danish version of that, or Danish-American version of that, it was, of course, Abelskiver and Medistapulsa. And this is a, a really good example of where traditions have a shared root, but then they diverge in different environments. And so Danes visiting Elkhorn today are horrified. <laughs> and, you know, if they're very, you know, direct about it, they will actually say, that's not Danish. But of course, how do Elkhorn residents hear that? Yes, it is. Of course it is. This is exactly what my Danish ancestors you know, did, and it's been shared through the generations. And so the distinction, of course, between Danish and Danish-American can be really subtle and, and hard to kind of keep very clear. It's our job as a museum to make sure that we help people understand that these two things share a common root but they are not always the same, but they are both valid, you know, that both of these traditions come out of authentic experiences and the transmission and connections over generation through time and place. What do you find is the, um, is kind of the most surprising thing? I think, um, when when visitors come to when American visitors come to the museum, I think, uh, as strange as this might sound, a lot of them 
don't know that Legos are Danish. A lot of them don't know that some of these, um, you know, Hollywood or uh, professional athletes, um, you know, stars actually, you know, have Danish roots themselves. And so the the degree to which, you know, Danes and Danish culture, you know, have such a, an imprint on on our lives, I think that's that's a surprise to a lot of our American visitors. To Danish visitors, I think the surprise is often, I can't believe you've saved all this. I can't believe that enough people have um, have cared so much and have found this so interesting. Um, and I think part of that comes from a phenomena that that is probably maybe not uniquely American, but but certainly i think comes out of the fact that that the united states is really a nation of immigrants and and because almost everyone in the united states kind of traces roots to somewhere else in the world and because as a society in the united states we are so mobile you know very few people you know spend their entire lives in the same place or even the same state, um, generations, you know, split and move and, you know, very readily. So to find our own sense of place and where we belong in the world, <laughs> in our family, whether, maybe not geographically, but just a place in the world, a lot of Americans really look to their own family history to try to understand, you know, what choices did their predecessors make and where, where, where can they claim as a homeland? So, so I think it's the, the popularity of genealogy and DNA testing in American society today. I think that really speaks to that, that hunger to feel that connection. And, and if you didn't grow up learning about your cultural connections to family traditions or things like that, how do you seek that and reconstruct that so that it's something that you can pass on to your children and grandchildren? So, you know, for, for Danes, um, you know, come visiting from Denmark, you know, Danes know they're from Denmark. You know, that's not a question. <laughs> and and to, to see the effort to which Danish Americans have, have, you know, supported the notion of defining what it means to be Danish American and saving all of those stories and sharing them with the public, I think that's a really notable effort that that takes some Danish visitors by surprise. You mentioned that um, genealogy is a, a a big thing in the United States, and understanding a little bit about your roots. Um, do you do work with that at the museum? We do. We have a whole department that's our genealogy center, um, and both with um, you know physical documents as well as a lot of online records. Um, we help people with their family history research. We help people with translations. I mean, most Danish Americans do not speak Danish. And so if in your family you have, you know, some postcards that were received, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, the, you know, Gladia Yule postcards, well, you can't read it. So, so we, we provide both research and translation services to people all across the country who are really trying to dig into where those roots are and, and how far those, those roots may lead. And all they need to do is contact you to 
learn a little bit more about that, I suppose, right? Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of information on our website. And sometimes we've even been um, contacted by, by people in Denmark who are trying to solve the mystery of what happened to, you know, that, that American uncle and did, you know, where did they, where did he end up in America? And, and do, do I have cousins? Um, kind of some answering those questions and reconnecting families and sometimes, which is, which is really fun. Who's behind the museum? Who are the benefactors and the donors? Um, where's the money come from? The money comes from private individuals. We do not receive state funding or public funds. Um, uh, we have uh, about 2,000 uh, members. They are in all 50 states um, and in Denmark and in, in a handful of other countries around the world. And so those members um, are, are the, the financial support for this institution. Great. So we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Studying for an executive MBA at Henley Business School in Denmark is an intense and rewarding experience. If you want to achieve the best possible outcomes in business and in life, Henley can give you the skills and knowledge you need through the Henley MBA. For more information, visit henley.dk. How was the experience of being an immigrant to the United States for the Danes? Was it easy? Immigration is never easy. You know, leaving a country that you know and going to another place is never a simple decision and never easy. So so I want to, to certainly make that clear. If you compare the Danish immigration experience to other um, European immigration experiences, it was probably easier than most. And that's not to say that there weren't risks and that there weren't sorrow along the way. Um, there were a couple notable um, steamship disasters when a lot of immigrants lost their lives. Um, but uh, but Danes were in the late 19th and early 20th century perceived to be desirable immigrants in the United States. They were Northern European. They were Protestant. They were literate. Um, and, and all of those things kind of gave them a, a, a better starting point in kind of settling in the United States than, than other immigrants who were, did not meet all of, all of the, the desirable checklist at the time. Most Danish immigrants, you know, in the in the big wave of European migration, there were no um, immigration quotas in the United States for Europeans at the time. So there there were no visa requirements. You didn't have to um, you didn't have to win a lottery to to have permission to come. You did have to meet certain expectations. Um, you had to pass health inspections. You had to have at least twenty five dollars cash. You know all of these things that that usually at a place like Ellis Island they would kind of check and make sure that you met all of the criteria. Um, most Danes were coming not because of overt oppression or religious persecution, but because of economic opportunity. And that also meant that they started kind of at a, at a better starting point in America than, than other immigrant groups who were kind of forced to flee their homeland. 
So the majority of Danish immigrants, the Mormons are the big exception, but the, the majority of them came for economic opportunity. Um, they uh, um, were largely from rural areas um, and with a rising population and, and not having enough in kind of in industry to absorb a growing population and, and, uh, you know, migration to the cities, a lot of those folks, you know, chose to take the leap, you know, to the United States or, or even Australia, um, other places around the world. Um, so there were, there were a lot of, of kind of systems in place to, to help, help immigrants along the way, not without risk, not without challenge, but, um, the Danish immigration story does not have the same level of, um, of, of oppression or prejudice that other groups arriving in America have experienced. You mentioned the one note, it sounds like at least the notable exception to that are the, are the Danish Mormons. How was their experience different? Their experience was different in a couple of ways. First of all, they were the first big wave of Danish immigrants. And so they were traveling mostly between 1850 and 1860. Um, so travel, the travel routes were not quite as well established. Um, and their motivations were different. You know, they... Um, they were by and large from the lower classes and working classes of Denmark. And so they, they probably were attracted by some of the same economic motivations as well. But, um, but they joined a, a migration route that was mapped out by fellow Mormons and helped along, you know, to get them to, you know, the, the different places in the Midwest and then later on to Utah, where the Mormons were really gathering together to kind of create their, their new version of how society could work together. So, so they, they kind of joined in this larger wave um, and, and their, their challenges then were not because they were Danish or necessarily because they were immigrants, but because as part of the Mormon communities, the Mormons themselves, you know, faced um, kind of prejudice and sometimes were, were chased out of the communities where they'd been staying, you know, and until they finally uh, made their way to, to establish uh, Salt Lake City. Is it a surprise to most Danes uh, that there were so many Danish Mormons that came over? Um, I, I don't know. I, I suppose so, because it's not a story that's really well told. Um, for a long time, the Danish Mormon story has kind of been secondary to the Mormon story. And, and only, only recently are there of a few more, um, you know, histories written and a few more uh, scholarly um, explorations of how how do those two identities intersect? You know, did Danish Mormons just leave Danish culture entirely behind, or what parts have you know been been integrated into the the larger Mormon identity? So so that that area of research is actually fairly new. Um, so that's, uh, it, it's an, it's an interesting, um, uh, interesting topic. The book written recently, the title is Danish, but not Lutheran. So there you go. <laughs> well, and the interesting part of that is, uh, you know, as many 
books and uh, you know the Ken Ken Burns great documentary about uh, about the West and included a big section on this. Um, but that is that the Mormons really were the first big wave of people to settle the American West. So more than they even were Mormon, they were the first real settlers of the big country, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating, just intentional move way deep into what was then the frontier and beyond what was even formally the United States at the time. Yeah. Right. Let's come to the modern age. Talk about something that's very much on everybody's mind here in the United States at the at the moment, and that is politics. Denmark has been used as a kind of uh, political instrument <laughs> the last four or five years as a kind of uh, model of a welfare society on one side and perhaps a model of abhorrent socialism on the other side. What's your opinion about how Americans, people who visit the museum in general, view Denmark? I think a lot of people who come to the museum do not have a personal experience of being in Denmark. And so one of the things that we added to our exhibits a few years ago was a section on modern Denmark. That was that was new, but but we realized, especially as you say, in the last few years, Denmark has become more and more a part of the, the current political discourse. And even prior to that, um, you know, Denmark was frequently making the news in America as the happiest country on earth. So, you know, so the, the kind of the general curiosity of, well, why? <laughs> Like, why why are they so happy and and why why are our politicians talking about Denmark so so we we did want to try to provide some answers to those questions um you know what are the elements of of Danish society that um that we that we could maybe learn from and better better understand how policies impact you know quality of life and um, and how how choices you know will will perhaps you know impact different outcomes. So so we do have a little section about um, what are some of the Danish uh, social values that contribute to general you know general contentment levels and and quality of life. We do also want to point out that, you know, Denmark is not, you know, a socialist state in the way that a lot of um, politicians here equate with the the boogeyman of communism, <laughs> um, which has so much baggage in American political discourse. So that that you know, along with the social welfare state, there is also a very strong you know capitalist foundation, and that those two things can work together. So so just trying to provide you know facts about you know Denmark today, and the other section that we want to educate people about Denmark today is that. Whereas our museum is kind of dedicated to the story of people who left Denmark and came to the United States, you know, Denmark now is a receiving country for immigration to Denmark from various parts of the world. And um, for a lot of our visitors who, you know, who have the idea that basically every <laughs> everyone in Denmark is going to have blonde hair and blue eyes, that is not the case. And that the same reasons and motivations that might have inspired their ancestors to leave Denmark and come to the U.S. are now inspiring people from different parts of the world to go to Denmark. It sounds like you're trying to do this in a very curated and a very kind of neutral way, but that must really be a challenge. 
Yes, because we are, you know, we are called, you know, as a nonprofit institution, um, you know, a nonprofit museum in the United States, we have to remain nonpartisan. Um, we can talk about politics, we can talk about history, we can provide facts and figures, um, but we cannot kind of take political sides in, in favoring one party's interpretation or, or another's. So, so we do have to, to walk that balance. We also need to recognize the limitations of what we can, we can be experts on. Um, since we do not, you know, live and experience contemporary Danish politics or society today as a regular basis, um, it would be almost impossible for us to stay up to date on what what are Danish politics today, and you know whose policies are you know are um, changing things, and and how might how might um, the the next government or the next prime minister influence uh, influence things as well? So so for that, you know, we we recognize that that's one of our limitations that we just can't be kind of on top of things. We're not journalists, you know, we're we're more historians, um, and it's our job to to kind of present at least a, a factual starting point for people to to you know continue their own explorations and and readings with with different resources. And maybe that's what lies in your name a little bit, the Museum of Danish America. You don't call it the Museum of Denmark, right? Exactly. Exactly. Why are Danes why do they continue to be so fascinated by the United States? Well, I think there's a lot of there's there's such a long historical relationship between Denmark and the United States. I mean, just on a on a national level, um, you know, Denmark was the first nation to officially recognize the existence of the United States, um, and uh, we we recently did a temporary exhibition called Denmark: America's Smallest and Biggest Ally. And that really explored a hundred years of of the kind of geopolitical and military cooperation, you know, between these two nations, you know. And here you have the United States, you know, as as a, a superpower for now how many decades, you know. And you have Denmark, which you know, centuries ago was you know had its own M imperial footprint, you know, in Northern Europe. Um, but, you know, but it's it, its own history as now a, a small country kind of figuring out how to still have an influence on the global stage. The contrast between these two nations is obvious. You know, what is less obvious is the points of cooperation and the mutual benefit that each country has received from that. And so I think that's that's really an important story um, that that deserves more attention and and that we that we really wanted to explore through this through this exhibition um, of you know think about how how many points of of cooperation um, where one nation has helped the other and I think a lot of us who worked on that exhibition took a lot of um, reassurance that despite some political rhetoric that says, you know, no, we can do it alone. No, we, you know, we don't need others. Actually, you know, 
the the history, the mo modern history shows us that that we do, and that um, we can accomplish so much, you know, together and kind of maintaining these relationships. So, what happens in the U.S. will affect how all of these relationships around the world will evolve in the coming years. We at the museum have been fielding a lot of calls from Danish journalists, <laughs> um, you know, trying to to kind of connect with some Americans to get, you know, to get insight into uh, this current elections. With regards to the exhibition you talked about and these kind of points of cooperation, um, can you be a little bit more concrete? I mean, without. Mm -hmm going through the whole exhibition, but are there one or two of those points of cooperation or things that Danes really depend upon the United States for that uh, really pop out? Yeah, well, I think um, the the historical cooperation with Greenland um, starting in World War II um, and um, the the Danish ambassador in absentia, basically, who who stayed in Washington D.C. even after Denmark was occupied, um, and he refused to go home. The, you know, he he stayed. Um, Henrik Kaufmann he stayed in his position and declared that he would continue to represent the free Danish people, and the American government recognized that. And so the Roosevelt administration negotiated with Kaufman, who had no authority from the official uh, people in charge of Denmark at the time, but they negotiated with Kaufman that Greenland would be able to be a site for American air bases in order to reach um, the uh, European continent throughout the course of the war. And of course, that continues. That continues to be an American air base at Tula um, and on Greenland. And that that would not have happened without kind of the personal relationships built and supported, you know, over, you know, over the course of decades. Um, and, and of course the other, um, the other point of cooperation and where the, um, the phrase Denmark's uh, being the America's smallest and biggest ally comes from is, um, is with the uh, support that um, Anders Fogh Rasmussen uh, gave to George W. Bush um, at the time of the Second Iraq War, and you know, um, being able to to say that uh, American military action had the support of European allies like Denmark. Um, that was a notable point in in that kind of very recent history of of you know global global action together. So um, you know without you know without debating of the merits of of the military action itself, that cooperation and that relationship you know was was a critical part of of uh, both both nations' decision making in that time, and I think that's that's exactly why I think um, more um, more of the general American public, you know, needs to be aware of how how to connect these dots, you know, between like how how we how we navigate a changing global environment, how we navigate changing global um, political allegiances, and and that that uh, this this relationship has has been important at so many points in recent history, and will continue to be so. I think. Tova, we're coming to uh, the final part of our podcast. Now it's all about you. What's your own background? Are you Danish yourself? 
Um, my mother's family is 100% Norwegian American over about four generations. They just kept marrying more Norwegian Americans <laughs> until my mother met my father, who's German and Irish. So, um, so I, I do have some Scandinavian background, and that's why I was named Tova. Um, but uh, um, I sometimes consider myself a Danish convert, if that's allowed. Um, uh, it's, I've worked for the Museum of Danish America for 11 years now, and in learning about different aspects of, of Danish culture and, um, and history, it's been a lot of fun. What do you like most about your job? That no day is the same. Um, you know, working in a museum is, is always wearing a lot of different hats. And so that means you can be a writer and a researcher and a teacher and a public speaker and, <laughs> um, and a business person, you know, sometimes all in the same day. If you could um, recommend something to people visiting Denmark from outside the country, what would that be? I recommend getting the Copenhagen City Pass. The accessibility of Denmark was really wonderful to experience. Um, I traveled there with my husband who has, you know, no, no Danish connection himself. And so we were just finding our way together. And, um, you know, so being able to, to experience the the, you know, walking around Copenhagen and visiting Aarhus and um, just hopping on a train. We love trains. So <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. So I highly recommend just get the city pass so you can do everything. Great. And, you know, I think I probably know the answer to this question. But if Americans are, or if Danes are coming to America, what's the first thing they need to see? <laughs> The first thing they need to see, um, well, by definition, you can't fly straight to Elkhorn, Iowa. Um, you know, we did ask um, a visiting Danish family, oh, so what, you know, like, why did you decide to visit Elkhorn? And their response was, well, we were planning our holiday and we wanted to visit New York and the Grand Canyon. And we figured Elkhorn was on the way. Like no American would ever think of Elkhorn on the way between New York and the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so whatever your travel itinerary may be, I'm sure you can fit Elkhorn, Iowa into it. Along the same lines, just in, in, in very general terms, what if there's one thing that Americans can learn from the Danish culture, what would that be? Hygge. <laughs> Um, in fact, I've been doing a lot of presentations to different public libraries, uh, you know, with so many books um, published about Huga in English in the last few years. Um, that's been a real hot topic, you know, and and something that arguably Americans need a lot more of these days. <laughs> so um, so I've been doing I've been doing quite a few um, Huga presentations, uh, just explaining a little bit more about what what it what it means um you know how danes enjoy it and uh and how how maybe we can all get a little more huga in our lives if you could recommend um three books or i suppose it could even be films to our listeners what would they be and why one of the books that i've really enjoyed reading recently and and got a lot out of was countrymen by bo litigor um the story of the rescue of the danish jews what the title is in Danish, I don't know, but in English, it's Countrymen. And, um, you know, that was a, a really wonderful 
historian's approach to, you know, the, the lead up to the, the boat lift in 1943, um, interspersed with, a, with an actual family's personal memoirs of what they experienced. And it was such a wonderful combination of um, primary sources and just woven together so effectively. I've, I've been recommending that to a lot of people, especially if you're interested in, in World War II um, era history. Um, another book that that has stuck with me um, from uh, from literature is um, a man called Uva, um, Frederick Bachman's um, novel. I I have not seen the movie. I've only read the book, um, but I. I finished reading it on an airplane sitting next to a stranger and I was weeping at the end of the book, whereas my seatmate was reading a comedy and she was laughing at whatever she was reading, but I didn't care. I found it a wonderful moving book and, um, and I've, I've, I've recommended that too. And, and a third book that, um, that I read years ago and has continued to be um, influential to me is a, a book by Barbara Kingsolver who writes both fiction and nonfiction. This is one of her nonfiction books called Animal Vegetable Miracle. And it documents her own family's experience of a whole year eating only food that they grew themselves, bought locally, or bought from people they knew directly in their region. And so as an exploration of food systems, and um, you know, kind of how that impacts family lives and the choices that we all can make as individuals. Um, that that was um, that was a, a, a great read and and has stuck with me a long time. Probably some real connections to the new new Nordic food movement there, also, right? Indeed, yes, yep. Yeah, great, Toba. Thank you so much for your time, director of the Museum of Danish America. The doors are always open in Elkhorn. Uh, that's right, or at least you can always give us a call. Our website, danishmuseum.org, will tell you everything you need to know. On the way between New York and the Grand Canyon. Somewhere on there, yes. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.